T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. We came very close to a catastrophic breakdown of our democratic accountability. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. Right now, we're kind of stuck in this cycle where every summer we're hearing another story about a big fire and a town burning down. It's still extremely difficult to hold government agencies accountable for abuses that take place in the name of national security. This is KCBS In-Depth. Twenty twenty, the year we thought would never end. It was defined by a deadly pandemic, destructive wildfires, and widespread civil unrest. And when 2021 rolled around, the Bay Area had high hopes that this new year might go easy on us. But as we've seen over the past 12 months, the year had other plans. The state has seen a dramatic uptick in COVID cases, with last week's numbers up 90%. Fire conditions continue in the Lake Tahoe Basin, pushing the Caldor Fire to within three miles of South Lake. It was another violent day punctuated by gun violence that resulted in death for the 92nd time this year in Oakland. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth. I'm Keith Benconi, and today on the program, we're going to take a look back at some of the biggest stories and trends of this past year to try to get a better handle on where we might be headed as we begin 2022. So a bit later on in the program, we'll be hearing about this year's unprecedented fire season and also the troubling surge in violent crimes that's taken place. But up first, we're going to start off reflecting on the Bay Area's second year battling the COVID-19 pandemic. For some perspective, we're going to welcome on now Dr. John Swartzberg, Clinical Professor Emeritus of Infectious Diseases and Vaccinology at UC Berkeley's School of Public Health. Dr. John Swartzberg, welcome back to KCBS In-Depth. Thank you very much. So I remember that when we last spoke on this show, which was just about this time last year, we were very much in the midst of the winter surge, you know, the worst surge that we've seen yet in this pandemic. Uh, but at the time, you were predicting a pretty good start to 2021. Uh, and indeed, I think that the the months that followed uh, proved you right. The vaccines did seem to turn things around uh, for many months to, to such a degree that I think uh, by late May, mid-June, uh, a lot of us were kind of beginning to think maybe this pandemic was over. Um 
But obviously, that is not how things ultimately turned out. The Delta variant soon emerged, changed everything. Now, Omicron has emerged and has changed everything all over again. So uh, really, I think it's fair to say that this has been a year of dramatic ups and downs. Uh, Have you been surprised by how quickly we've seen the emergence of these variants and uh, how quickly they've scrambled the math on the COVID fight? Well, I was disappointed to see these variants, but not surprised. Yeah. Um, the disappointment was obviously that this virus has a lot of tricks up its sleeve and continues to have those tricks up its sleeve. And we certainly saw that with the emergence to a small extent with Alpha last spring um, in April and or very early May, but it didn't do too much to our society. Uh, but we really saw it uh, considerably this summer with Delta. Delta was really rough this summer. Uh, this summer's Delta surge was a lot worse than the surge of, of the summer of 2020. And then of course, now there's uh, a twindemic of Delta plus Omicron going on now with Omicron way out in the lead. And we didn't anticipate that. And Omicron is entirely different from any of the uh, other variants we've seen in, and the ancestral strain meaning its genetic composition is just a dramatic change from anything else we've seen. So I think what we saw this year was with the variants, um, not a surprise because we anticipated that um, that this virus could do this and probably would do this. But I think um, uh, certainly to a tremendous disappointment and of great concern with what this virus continues to have in terms of tricks up its sleeve. Yeah, yeah, I think that we're all waiting for the next curveball that gets sent our way. Uh, Want to get your thoughts on the public health response that we saw over this past year, because that was one of the big points when we had you on last year, uh, was that this pandemic is really a reminder of the importance of investing in public health and uh, making sure that those resources are there when you are in this kind of health emergency that we are in. Uh, And of course, 2020, uh, we were all relatively new to this pandemic. We were dealing with things, figuring it out as we went. By the time we hit 2021, we had some experience ourselves uh, fighting. uh, You know, we got some curveballs, but we had some experience at that point. How much better do you think that we did in 2021 over uh, 2020, you know, at the federal, state and local levels? Uh, What what grade would you give our response? Well, comparing... 2021 with 2020, um, we did dramatically better. It's important to remember that in 2020, we had a a CDC that was politicized to the extent where uh, politicians were were vetting the material coming out of the CDC, including the morbidity and mortality weekly report from the CDC, something that has been sacrosanct for decades Um, manipulated by politicians. Um, And we had an administration that was undermining not just the CDC, but undermining undermining public health in general uh, and giving contrary messages and uh, messages that really cost a lot of people um, their lives. So this year we have an administration that is much improved in that in those regards. But it's been interesting in looking at this administration, which I think has the right attitude and has some really good people involved in um, uh, supporting public health, that even even with the best of attitudes, 
um, we've seen the limits of what um, this administration has been able to accomplish. Uh, it's very disappointing to be sitting here right now um, telling people that they really need to, to use rapid testing much more liberally than, than we have in the past and yet not have rapid testing available to us. This is something that um, really should have been anticipated a long time ago and we shouldn't be in this position right now. So in terms of a grade, um, as you probably remember, I gave America in general in terms of uh, political response to public health an F in 2020. This year, I would give um, uh, the political response a B. I wish I could give it an A, but I just can't. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, th I think that that is the headache that a lot of people are feeling, uh, trying to navigate this uh, tricky holiday season and not being able to get the tests that uh, we're, we've been told over and over again are what we need to really uh, make sure that we're safe to go to that party. Um, what about at the state and local level? It seems like the main focus here has been on ramping the, the vaccines up. And uh, at least here in the Bay Area, it's been relatively successful. We're, we're seeing in uh, most counties, I think, uh, above an 80 uh, percent vaccination rate. I don't know where, where the booster rate is at at this point, but uh, compared to the rest of the country, that rollout seems to have been relatively successful. Yeah, I must say that um, I wake up every morning being very grateful that I live here in the Bay Area uh, and that I live in the state of California. Um, in spite of all of the difficulties that uh, public health has had in the, since the beginning of this pandemic, I think the state of California has done an excellent job. And I think the, um, the Bay Area public health officers have done a uh, um, superb job, meaning superb, better than excellent. Um, we're really blessed to have very good public health officers in this, in this um, area of the state. The, I must say that we also have to acknowledge that public health officers and public health policies are only as good as the public will follow them. And California, the population of California in general has followed public health dicta very well. And I think it's that combination of a population that trusts science, trusts people involved in public health, trusts governance, when you have a community like that, you're going to see much greater success than in many other communities around the United States. And, I, and that's, I think, why we've seen it here. The, the, the vaccination rates here in California, as you were mentioning, is really just a, one good example of that. But also, if we look at uh, masking and we look at social distancing, the public in general, particularly here in the Bay Area, tends to follow it much better uh, than looking at other states. And it's important to remember, Keith, that, you know, this is the biggest state in the United States. You'd think, you know, with 40 million plus people living here, that if any state was going to have a tough time, it would be California. Um, yep, we've consistently done better than much of the United States. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's certainly a lot to be proud of. I'm, I remember when I went out to get my first and second dose it was genuinely kind of moving to see how many people had showed up to work that day to make sure that me and the other uh, the other Santa Clara County residents that were there to get their shot, you know, could get their shot in a timely, efficient manner. It was just a lot of people working together, making this really important thing happen. And uh, that doesn't just happen by accident. A lot of uh, smart people working overtime made that happen. So uh, genuinely moving to see uh, what we were able to accomplish uh, over the course of this year. 
So I, I suppose that leads us to looking to the year ahead at this point. I mean, we, we, as you said, have done a lot of things remarkably well, but we have also in California recently passed the uh, the marker being the first state to have recorded 5 million cases of COVID-19. And also uh, we got to acknowledge, despite everything that's been done right, uh, certainly still a lot of suffering out there. Uh, well north of 70,000 people have died of this disease here in California. Too. So the COVID fight is not over. Still more curveballs, as you've been alluding to. What do you think this COVID fight looks like as we head into 2022? Well, looking into um, the month of January, uh, it's going to be a very difficult month for the Bay Area, for California, and for the United States, and for a, a large swath of the people on this planet. Uh, it's it's a very difficult time, and January is going to be a very, very challenging month. I think that in general, um, the Bay Area is, and California is going to do better than much of the rest of the United States, but that doesn't mean we're going to come out unscathed. I think it's going to be um, our, our healthcare system right now is in good shape in terms of hospitals, hospital beds available and healthcare workers. Uh, but that could turn on a dime. And um, I know that here in the Bay Area, the uh, hospital administrators, for example, and leaders in hospitals are already thinking about that and making contingency plans. So short run, that is the next month, um, it's gonna be tough. It's gonna be very, very tough. I think like last year, by the end of this month, we're gonna to start to see the cases decline. As a matter of fact, I think we'll see a, a, a substantial decline beginning before the end of this month. Um, and that decline should continue through February and March. So in the intermediate run for the rest of um, the winter of 2022 and maybe very early spring, I think things will be progressively getting better. The reason why I'm more optimistic about late spring and summer is because we're gonna have a lot more people vaccinated by then. Uh, I suspect there is going to be more vaccine mandates, which will unfortunately have to force people to get vaccinated, unfortunately, because I'd love to see them get vaccinated without, being, without that being mandated. Um, we're gonna have more people boosted and we're gonna have young children who are not currently vaccinated because they can't be that is children less than five, by the springtime, I think the, that vaccine is gonna be available for them. So we'll have a large swath of people vaccinated who were not before. Hopefully we'll have a lot more children between five and 11 and a lot more teenagers vaccinated by then. So we'll have a more highly vaccinated population. We'll also have a population that will have survived um, Delta and Omicron, and they'll have some vaccine, uh, infection-induced immunity. I don't think that will be as good as um, vaccine-induced immunity, but infection-induced immunity will be helpful. On top of our immune system being better because primarily of vaccines, by this summer or late spring, we're gonna have um, medications available to take acutely when we get sick. So, and we're gonna, of course, know so much more our science is just, our understanding of the science is just so much more today than it was six months ago. And I can only imagine 
what it's going to be six months from now. So all those things, you put them all together, Keith, and um, it really feels to me like uh, we have a good shot at um, being in a very much better place in late spring, early summer than we currently are. So as you say, uh, certainly some difficult weeks and perhaps months ahead, but uh, also uh, a lot to look forward to there. So glad that we got your perspective in this conversation that I think probably both of us were hoping that we wouldn't be having again this year. Um, We have been speaking once again to Dr. John Swartzberg. He is a clinical professor emeritus of infectious diseases and vaccinology at UC Berkeley's School of Public Health. Dr. John Swartzberg, thanks so much. Thanks so much, Keith, and Happy New Year and a healthy one. Happy New Year to you as well. This is KCBS In-Depth, your weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Manconi. Today, as we say hello to 2022, we're reflecting on some of the biggest events and trends of the past year. Up next, we're going to take a look back at the 2021 wildfire season. Of course, for the past several years now, just about every wildfire season in California has had some new dangerous twist to it. This past year was no different. To discuss what set 2021 apart, I recently spoke with Scott Stevens, a professor of fire science at UC Berkeley. Here's that conversation. Dr. Scott Stevens, welcome back to KCBS In-Depth. Happy to be here. So it's been a little bit of an interesting year because we, in terms of acres burned, this is the second most acres burned of any wildfire season uh, since we've been keeping records in California. So just uh, mass devastation when you look at just the sheer number of uh, acres of California that were charred up. But here in the Bay Area, we might not have a full sense of that because a lot of these fires were in the Sierra Nevada. They were pretty far away from home. And uh, for a lot of us, uh, they we, we didn't necessarily feel that. And also, it wasn't a particularly deadly year. Uh, I think only uh, around three people were killed over the course of the year. So um, a a little bit of a different picture from what we've seen in fire seasons over the past uh, couple of years. No, I would agree. You know, not as many people lost. That's always a very good thing. And a lot of fires, as you said, more remote areas here in Nevada, there was a huge number of fires up also in the Klamath Shasta area too that didn't get our attention much. And there was huge fires there, but not near as close to populated centers. And yet we did see uh, quite a bit of devastation uh, when we think of the city of Greenville uh, and the way that the fire, um, the fires were behaving over the course of the summer. Uh, There was a level of ferocity there that I think took a lot of people by surprise. No, I would agree. The Dixie fire, like you just referred to, they hit Greenville. It's just terrible. And the Dixie you know, started there in the Feather River Canyon, looks like another electrical fire that still hasn't been completely um, decided, but maybe electrical power line, 900,000 acres plus, burns for so long. And one thing about the Dixie fire that got my attention is it kept moving by spotting very, very efficiently, just throwing embers out in front, burning embers, and then new fire starting, new fire starting. It did that so much over the summer this year, and then it got it such a large size. They almost had that thing completely contained just to the west of Lake Oroville, but unfortunately, the uh, fire was able to jump across the control line, Humboldt Road, and keep on going, but it kept burning for such a long time and did cause really harm to a lot of ecosystems and people. 
And this is also the first year where uh, a fire has crossed over the entire Sierra Nevada. And uh, we saw that happen twice. Also, uh, we saw it with the Dixie Fire and then again with the Calder Fire. What accounts for this behavior? No, you're right again, you know, just the movement, you know, such some vast areas. And I, I think this year, the two-year drought, you know, here we are now getting some great rain, which is great. But the last couple of years before us, we were in a really severe drought, the driest period since 76, 77. And when you have that type of dryness and dead fuel on the ground, it does enhance the ability of these fires to move by spotting. And I think just exactly why Caldor and Dixie did what they did, because of just the opportunity to basically move by spot fire. And when you have such vulnerable forest conditions already, we have such vulnerable conditions. We've had them for decades and decades and decades. You throw a two-year drought on top of that, also impacts the climate change. And then you get these fires that are basically doing things that are just awful. So it's a culmination of so many decades of um, inaction and restoration, needed work. And then you throw a two-year drought and climate change, we see something like the Dixie and Caldor. Yeah, yeah. So it's just a massive roll of the dice, given the uh, fact that we are living in such a tinderbox here uh, at this point. One thing, you know, we, we, we mentioned the loss of life. Luckily, we were spared in relative terms to what we've seen in years past. But one, I think, uh, real loss of this past year that we're going to be feeling for a long time in California is the death of many giant sequoias, which were burned up. And uh, those trees typically can coexist with fire. So again, we're seeing some extreme fire behavior there that we're not really used to. No, you're right. And this is really something that hit me pretty strongly personally. I was in the um, Castle Fire, the 2020 Castle Fire that burned a couple years ago. And now we have the KNP Complex Fire that burned also in the Southern Sierra. And some estimates are 15 to 20% of mature or old growth giant sequoias have been killed by these two fires. And that's really a stunner. I mean, we're the only place in the world that's got giant sequoia. These trees, 1,500 years old, 1,700 years old, massive. I was in the Castle Fire this year with a crew. We're doing some work in it. And it really just got to me because I was walking in that area from one giant sequoia that was burned to a crisp to another burned to a crisp to another burned to a crisp, just everywhere on the landscape. And I was just standing in front of those things thinking, this thing's been here 1,500 years plus. And we've actually set the conditions up to actually lose this many in two years. That's a darn travesty. That's a disaster. Mm -hmm. So it really got to my soul a little bit because of just looking at just the impacts. And I don't want to belittle people losing houses. I know that's huge, too. But when you see those trees and so many of them dead over such a vast landscape, it really gets to you. Yeah, yeah. And walking around Big Basin earlier this year, I had a, a similar sense. Um I think the, the, the question probably on the minds of so many of our listeners right now is how many more years of this do we need to go through before, you know, we finally turn the corner and see some of the effort that we're putting into the fuel clearing and the prescribed burns and all of that before we start seeing this payoff and things little by little get better. This year, what, what does that tell us about what kind of a trajectory we should expect? Well, that's the question I think is the biggest, yeah. probably the biggest question we like to have answers on. And it's a hard one. I'd be honest, it is a hard one. I would say that I am really optimistic about the state. You know, the last year, the Brown administration into the Newsom administration, the Newsom administration has put more effort into this area than any administration in my history of 30 years working on this, putting funds, putting capital of politics into it, trying to get people to basically kind of rally. 
And I, I really do want to give credit there. I wish this had started 25 years ago mm. because we'd be in a different yeah. spot now. You know, and you're right. And if you look at just what we have in front of us versus what we really have to really put restoration, I still say in restoration, we need to do around five to 10 times more prescribed burning restorations and get that work going now and actually continue it forever. So we're still way behind in getting this work done. I mean, dramatically behind. I would say the federal side is probably the most behind, the federal side, U.S. Forest Service in particular. I used to work for the Forest Service, and it's a great agency, but it has not been able to do what we need to do. So I think think we're headed for quite a few more years of this. I I hate to say it. But eventually, as you just said, if we can do the investments and get the work done, we will moderate this. I guarantee it. Mm. But right now, we're still in a very difficult position. And, you know, I tough to predict the future. Don't want to put you in that position. But just in terms of what we know about the fire season of 2022, the year ahead, we're, we are seeing, uh, I think, more rain this winter than we were expecting. What does that tell us about potentially the kind of fire season we could expect in the year ahead? Yes, you're right. And we look at 2022, we've got big snowpack, huge snowpack in the mountains, thank goodness, and lots of good rain. I think this sets us up really for a uh, fire season that'll start later in the year, um, probably a little bit more what we would consider maybe average for the last several several decades. So I think we're going to at least now look at a fire season in 2022 that should not be near as severe because of just the amount of snow, amount of rain, those fuels staying wet for much longer, good runoff. Unless, you know, Mother Nature stops all precipitation right now, which seems very unlikely, I think 2022 is going to be a much better um, fire season than 2021 and 2020. One thing about that that tells us then, if we wanted to do prescribed burning and actually maybe cultural burning with tribes, if they wanted to do that, these are the seasons you got to use. You know, you've got to be able to be able to be nimble enough to take these advantages to get systems going, including burning when you have, you know, a good season in terms of water like this year. Also, burning in a drought in the middle of the winter. That's another thing, you know, even though the drought's been really awful, colleagues of mine, Rob York and others have been burning in the dead of winter. He did that at 6,000 feet in the Sierra Nevada before Christmas because there was an opportunity there to do the burning. It just tells us, again, we're going to have to be so much more nimble in our ability to get work done and also you know, use these fire seasons like maybe 2022 as another opportunity to do more work. Because if we don't get the work done, the fundamentals to me are getting those fuels in a condition that can deal with fire climate change in the future and also getting people better prepared for fire in California. If we don't do those two things and do them well, we will never get out of this hole. Well, I think a lot of that is going to be welcome news for our listeners, but um, I hope uh, folks also hear the call to action that was in there as well. So uh, certainly a lot of work to be done in the year ahead. We have been speaking once again to Dr. Scott Stevens, a professor of fire science at UC Berkeley. Dr. Scott Stevens, thanks so much. Happy to have been here. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. 
After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter, and Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. Now, with the MLB app, you can get baseball your way. Pick your favorite team, your favorite players, and get customized highlights, stories, and breaking news right on your home feed. Follow the action with Game Tip, where 3D replays add another dimension. Plus, notifications can keep you connected to every pitch, every hit, every game. The MLB app. Baseball, your way. Download it now for free from the App Store or Google Play. Blackout and other restrictions apply. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission. If you're just joining us, this is KCBS In-Depth. I'm Keith Menconi, and on this edition of the program, we're reflecting on some of the biggest stories of this past year. Last up on the program, we take a closer look at another troubling trend that continued into 2021, the surge in violent crime in many Bay Area cities. Among those cities, Oakland has seen the largest increase, including more than 130 homicides, reaching a level that hasn't been seen in more than a decade. For some insight on what's driving this violence, I spoke with Ann Marks, executive director of Youth Alive. It's a violence prevention group that works with young people in Oakland. Ann Marks, welcome to KCBS In-Depth. Thank you for having me. So I think all of our listeners have seen the headlines. They've seen the statistics that attest to the uh, terrible tragedies that have been happening in terms of violence out uh, on Bay Area streets over the past year, continuing from uh, an increase that we saw the year prior as well. What has that looked like from your perspective in the work that you do, you know, working with some of the people that are impacted uh, by the surge in violent crime? Well, it's looked like tragedy. At Youth Alive, we work with victims of homicides, right? the, the surviving family members. We work with people who have been shot or stabbed directly, and it's it's heartbreaking. Um, at the levels that we were seeing before, which were declining in the pri- in the previous 10 years, it was heartbreaking, but to see it increase like this in the midst of so many other stresses and tragedies that we're going through, and I don't have to describe that. Everyone knows we've all been living through this. So it's, it's, it's been heartbreaking to have to face that. And as you just alluded to a second ago, this is coming on the heels of a very prolonged decline in violence. So I imagine this must come as a real disappointment to see this turnaround over the past two years. I don't think disappointment covers it. Uh, it's it's tragic and it's heartbreaking and it's not unexpected given what is going on. Um, every city has seen increases in violence. We are one of those cities and it, it's it's disappointing, but everything about this pandemic is disappointing. Everything about the increasing inequality that has led to a lot of the the crime and violence we see is disappointing. Um, A lot of the mental health struggles that we're all facing are disappointing, right, to say the least. So this is not, um, I don't think disappointing covers it. It's just, it's, it's heartbreaking that we're all going through this and the way it impacts our most vulnerable communities is, is particularly tragic. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly, uh, 
not a strong enough word to really convey uh, the sort of tragedy that you're describing right there. Tell us a little bit about how the pandemic has played into this. You talk about the economic disruptions and the other sorts of disruptions that people have been facing in their lives. How does that translate into more violence occurring? Well, we know historically, science will tell us that every time there is an economic downturn, crime goes up. Every time inequality increases, crime goes up. Um, we also know that when there are particular stresses, um, right? Uh, and I don't have to pretend like we're not all dealing with increased stress. We know that stress can lead to conflict and conflict can lead to violence, especially when, and this is a trend that we have seen, when there are a literal flood, literal is not quite the right word, but a figurative flood of guns coming into our, mm. our hands. Um, we've seen gun ownership go way up across this country. There are more guns than we've ever had. And so you mix the combination of uh, lethal weapons with um, increasing frustration and stress, um, and uh, violence is what follows. So that's not surprising. One of the unique aspects of this, and I think people really focus on all the things that went wrong, right, to cause this. Um, and people forget that it's not just the things that went wrong, it's the things that stopped going right. Mm. And one of those things is we lost our social connection. Our, our children lost the structure and the support of the school for a long period of time and what that meant for them. And programs like ours that are out there doing effective work to prevent violence couldn't do our work the same way anymore. Um, and for a certain period, couldn't do our work at all. So all those things together really make this unique. Yeah. Uh, speaking once again to anybody just joining us with Ann Marks, the executive director of Youth Alive. And that is one of the uh, groups that has been intervening in violence in Oakland um, for many, many years now. And uh, you just referring a second ago to uh, the disruptions in the pandemic, uh, not being able to have those face-to-face meetings, making your own work more difficult. Uh, tell our listeners a little bit about what that work looks like when it is going the way you want it to. How can somebody intervene and stop this uh, th- this cycle of violence? One of the unique things about programs like those that we have at Youth Alive and other programs in the Bay Area across the country that are effective is our work is relationship-based. Healing in general happens in relationship. And particularly when there is a cycle of violence that needs to be stopped, when there are people who are in conflict with each other and may um, choose weapons, when there are people who are vulnerable to um, putting themselves in harm's way and need a strong mentor or support. And so at Youth Alive, our programs really rely on building that relationship, whether it's a mentor who supports you after you've been shot to say, don't take this as as a reason to carry a weapon because you don't feel safe. Don't take this as a reason to get involved with a gang because you don't feel safe. Take this as a reason to take a step back and heal and I'll be there for you. Mm. That type of relationship building is just different when it's not frequent, when it's not face-to-face or when it's face-to-face with a mask on. Um, Imagine already being paranoid from the PTSD of getting shot and then everyone around you has half their face covered up. So lots of programs that are trying to do this work just can't do it the same way, uh, and it's particularly particularly significant if your work is in the social services field, where you really depend on having relationship and building that relationship through face-to-face encounters, through doing things that used to seem so simple and mundane, like grabbing lunch together. Mm. 
So obviously there are a lot of perspectives out there right now on what should be done to address this violence. And uh, we're obviously not going to get to the bottom of all of those questions in this conversation, you know, what the role of police should be, what the role of other social services should be. But just from your perspective, uh, what are the sorts of changes that you would hope to see uh, in the coming year to maybe change some of the trends that you're discussing? I think one of the hardest things is not that we don't know what to do to end violence. It's that we don't actually invest in what it would take to do it. So what do I mean? At Youth Alive, for example, we respond to shootings. We have the capacity to work with about 120 uh, shooting victims a year. This last year, we stretched ourselves and served 200, but there were about 600, right? So that's, it's, a, it's a question of scale and how, um, how can we get to scale? And we're a, we're a well-established um, program. And that's, that's just a, an example of our work um, at Youth Alive, but there are obviously other organizations that are doing lots of work. We um, have a Department of Violence Prevention in the city of Oakland that's um, relatively new, um, been around for um, a couple of years and before that was embedded in the Department of Human Services. And um, its existence is a wonderful thing. And I think a lot of other cities, I know a lot of other cities wish they had uh, something like uh, Oakland has um, in terms of having a focus on violence prevention. And yet, right, the amount um, that is invested in that department is nowhere near to scale. We recently saw uh, the city council and the mayor approve a budget to increase the amount that's going into the department. And I think that's a significant step and I think very helpful. And even that money will take some time to roll out and we're really not going to see it until the summer. So, so, it's, not, so it's not what do we do, it's, it's how, do we, how do we invest enough in, in those things. Mm. And are you hopeful that 2022 is going to see some different trends than what we saw this year? Or are we beginning to see some light at the end of this tunnel? I am hopeful. I think there's a lot of reasons to be hopeful. One, we've really learned how to do our work uh, in a more effective way. Um, number two, the, what I just mentioned, that we know that there is more funding coming for uh, programs like Youth Alive and to our partners who are out there in the community working to prevent and intervene with violence. So I think both of those things uh, make me really hopeful. I don't think I'm unsuperstitious enough to say I hope the pandemic will end, but um, but I know that we are readier than we uh, have ever been to respond, no matter what happens. Yeah, there's uh, not enough wood to knock on in the world to make a statement like that. But uh, we will take that hopeful note to end out the conversation on. We have been speaking to Ann Marks, once again, the executive director of Youth Alive. Ann Marks, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you all for listening. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Menconi. Happy New Year. Stay safe, be well. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS. 
We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Oh, 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 Protect your vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Baseball is back, and so is MLB.tv. Watch every out-of-market, regular-season game on your favorite streaming devices. Anywhere, anytime, all season long. Follow the action live or on demand. Track four games at once with multi-view mode. And catch up with in-game highlights. Plus, original programs, minor league broadcasts, and local pre- and post-game shows. Go to MLB.tv to start your free trial today. Blackout and other restrictions apply. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission.